Hi everyone, welcome to episode 16 of Books with Jen. Today I am bringing you a chat with the wonderful Sarah Moss. She's one of the most exciting, thought-provoking writers that we have today and I'm very thankful for her. You may remember a couple of years ago I fell in love with her book The Tidal Zone and would not shut up about it. And we filmed a video together, the two of us, and then there was an extra bit with her and her editor who is Max Porter. So I will leave a link to that video in the show notes of this podcast as well. Um, But her most recent book is called Ghost War. It's about a young girl called Sylvie who has gone with her parents to this Iron Age settlement, this reenactment of history um, close to where they live in the north of England. It's about the stories that we tell ourselves about our own pasts and our collective pasts. So I wanted to sit down with Sarah and talk about the importance of storytelling, about borders, about how she crafts fiction. Um, so I took some cookies to the Granter offices and we sat down and had a cup of tea and had a natter. She had said that she felt as though this book was somehow perhaps more profound or the release of it was more profound than her other books. I asked her why she felt like that. I don't really know. I wonder if it's because it's partly about borders and national identity and nostalgia mm-hmm. and that's so current. I mean, every time I open the paper, there's yeah. something else along those lines. So mm. it, it feels, I don't know, I don't know about timely, but immediate. Yeah, it's a sense of uh, history repeating itself and a warning against history repeating itself in this book, right? Yeah, yeah. and also about mis- misreadings of history, that when you look to history for the thing you're trying to find rather than for what might be there, mm. you get it wrong in very dangerous ways. I mean, we're all always looking to history to back up what we think anyway yeah. or to give us a myth of origin. Um, but we need to be aware of that. Mm. We do that, it's, I can't remember where I read this, but I found it really interesting that mm. once we have made a decision on something, um, we will edit our memories of the decision that we have made and why we made that decision yeah. so that we feel more secure with the decision yeah. that we have made. I'm sure. Yeah. But that's really functional if it's something like buying a house or emigrating, because otherwise you'd spend your entire life thinking about this other life. Yeah, yeah. how <laughs> would it have been if I'd done this other thing? Mm. And that's so pointless because you'll never know and it doesn't make you happy. So you might as well pretend to that yeah. makes it okay. Yeah. So where did this book stem from for you? Where, what was the little seed? It had, that's a really nice question, it had two beginning points, I think. The first one was a residency in Hexham. Whenever I think about this, I realise I'm making it sound as if I was miserable, but I wasn't. (laughs) I finished The Tidal Zone, and that was quite a hard book to write in some ways. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to just rush on into the next thing, I wanted a, a space. Yeah. Um, to think partly about what the next thing was going to be and I decided that I wasn't going to write for six months that I would just read and it was winter, it was the middle of winter and I wanted, I don't know, a kind of solstice a moment, a moment of pause in the season of darkness Mm. and I went to Hexham with no real idea what I was going to do I think Susie thought I would write a short story because I'm a novelist and she was asking for something short but I've never written short fiction and I, I knew that I didn't have anything brewing there wasn't a short story there to be written and I walked about and looked at things a kind of attentiveness and then I thought since I wasn't making anything myself I would go talk to people who were yeah so I went into Cogito Books and said where are the makers in Hexham you know who, who should I go talk to if I want to watch people create things yeah 
and they gave me loads of really good leads but one of them was a guy called Andy Bates who's a leather worker and makes replicas and handling collections for museums so I turned up at his studio all kind of flustered and hesitant and you know English about it saying terribly sorry and you don't want to be any trouble and of course just send me away and it's completely you know mm. and he said no 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 you know come in have a cup of tea sit down and I just watched him working and he was making arrows with flight feathers for a museum's handling collection it was a museum that had a prehistoric bow and they wanted arrows to put in the case next to it so he'd been out picking up flight feathers from the grass for weeks and weeks and weeks until he got enough to experiment with and he was weighting them he was weighting them with teeny flint weights Mm. and throwing them it was like watching a child experimenting with paper aeroplanes and I looked around his studio and there were bits of leather and deer skin and some bird bones and these feathers and I was thinking about animals and death and humans and that really close relationship that we've mostly lost between animals and death and humans and I'd never really thought about leather I think until I talked to him but I was watching his hands working this leather and looking at the skin on his hands which was a bit scarred because he's a leather worker Mm. and he was showing me a scar on the leather and I was thinking about the cow and how it had got that scar and how the skin had healed and there was his healed skin and the cow's healed skin. And we were in the shadow of Hadrian's Wall where there were lots of Roman shoes had been found because Hexham had been a leather place for mm. 2,000 years. I was thinking about the strangeness of a thing you can do to skin that makes it last centuries beyond its owners. Mm. Um, and it all kind of started there. I mean, there, there I was, next to Hadrian's Wall, thinking about the Romans and the ancient Britons and thinking about borders a lot and about whether the Roman Empire, you know, were they European invaders or was it the beginning of British culture or both? Mm. You know, how, how do you tell that story? And it, it just all kind of took shape. Mm. I found it really beautiful and so captivating, I was going to say, for such a short period. How, how long is the word count? It's there? about 35,000 35, words. It's not very that's, long. Still, that's a lot of words, though. That's <laughs> a lot of words. Come on. <laughs> um, so that was where it started for you. And what I loved about this, well, I love many things about it, but I'm from the North as well. Yeah. And the, I had never really thought about this, but the relationship that the North, especially the Northeast, I've well, maybe not especially the Northeast, but because that is my experience, yeah. backing up what I'm saying with my own experience, <laughs> um, the relationship that the Northeast has with a past that seems further away yes. is so much more intense than down here. And yes. I have never considered that. I spent a lot of time going to Vindolanda and yeah. um, going around for Roman forts and thinking, yeah. why am I here? Yeah. <laughs> and all this stuff. And now, obviously, I want to go do these yes. things. And being taken on school trips to Beamish, which is now my favourite place on earth. Yes. If you don't know what Beamish is, it's a uh, Victorian Edwardian like, life town that exists and actors work there and you can go to the shops and you can go to school there and it's kind of terrifying and amazing and wonderful but um yeah that it's just it seems so much more embedded in yes. everything yeah um, and was that something obviously that you felt when you absolutely yeah yeah I mean I grew up in the northwest but with Yorkshire grandparents mm. and I spent a lot of time with them and my grandfather and my mother both had this really intimate sense of where the Romans had been in Yorkshire. I mean, my grandfather wasn't a scholar at all, um, but he was interested in place names and his, yeah, his own place, his own, his own landscape. Mm. 
Um, so I was always being taken off to look at a Roman this and a Roman that and a Roman something else in Yorkshire. And some of it was okay. There were some yeah. nice mosaic floors, but a lot of it was quite boring if you were six. Mm. But it did mean that I grew up with that sense of much older presences in the land. And it's one of the things I find odd about having moved to the south, actually, mm. that I mean, it's all there, but it's so overlaid. It's very yeah. hard to see. Yeah, it's been rewritten and built yes. over there. And yes, exactly, absolutely. When I was last up at Hadrian's Wall, there was this American tourist who was um, walking in front of me. Um, and we weren't actually near Hadrian's Wall at the time. But he said, would you guys take a picture of me by Hadrian's Wall? And like, he pointed at this wall. And I was like, this is, this is not Hadrian's Wall. And he's like, they won't know. It doesn't matter to take a picture. And I'm like, okay, maybe what matters? What matters? What doesn't matter? Yes. So from the leather, where do we go from there? Bog bodies. Bog bodies. Because... Shall I explain a bit about yeah, what yeah, they yeah, are? Please, yeah. So bog bodies have been found across northern Europe, pretty mm. much anywhere where there are bogs, north of, well, Germany, the Netherlands, across Scandinavia, some in the UK, some in Ireland. There was a particularly Iron Age habit, habit is an odd word, belief, act of faith, of throwing precious things into bogs and wetlands. Nobody knows why, because it's prehistory. But we still have the ghosts of this. I mean, when we throw coins into still water, mm. that's a similar movement. You're throwing a precious thing into a, a space that's water and land at the same time. Mm. And that's also where the idea of the Lady of the Lake comes from. It's the sword rising from the water, the precious thing coming back out of the bog. So although this feels very, very far away, mm. actually we still practice it a lot. Mm. And there were all sorts of really exquisite Iron Age objects found in bogs. Um, there were war trumpets and hoards of jewellery and swords. And most of them have been ritually broken or destroyed before they were put into the bog. They're put beyond use first. And we also find humans mm-hmm. um, who've been ritually destroyed and then put into the bog. And because the bog contains tannin, the humans are leathered and they last. So it is actually a kind of natural leathering. It's, it's the same chemicals and the same process. That's really creepy. <laughs> it is really, really creepy. And it means that, like, like the Roman shoes, it means that soft tissue outlasts time. Mm. So you can still see faces and hands and fingerprints. And we used the idea of bones from the deep past, yeah. but here you have... I say flesh, not much flesh really, but skin. I mean, Lindoman is one of the famous ones. Mm. But there are a lot of them. And they're so strange to see. It's, it's what fascinates me about prehistory. These moments of absolute intimacy and familiarity. You know, you look at fingerprints or most of the men are shaven so you, you can see the stubble. Mm-hmm. Um, eyelashes, how they'd done their hair on the last day. There were some lovely kind of complex twirls of putting up your hair mm-hmm. that have survived. And yet this impossibly alien way of death. And I like that that kind of stroking of the intimately familiar against the hauntingly weird. Alien way of death in this ritualistic kind of way, or also alien way of death because it's so much closer. And it's beastly. Almost. It is, but when I was writing the opening section which is a kind of imaginative reconstruction of one of these moments of sacrifice, I was thinking, 
this isn't different from any other kind of torture. I mean, mm. humans kill humans in the most horrible ways they can yeah. think of, and that still happens. It shouldn't be surprising to us. Would you mind reading the very mm. beginning section for us? And while you do that, I'm going to very cheaply eat a bit of cooking. So I'm sorry if you can hear that in the background. Now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep my <laughs> They bring her out, not blindfolded, but eyes widened to the last sky, the last light. The last cold bites her fingers and her face. The stones, which are not the last stones, bruise her bare feet. She stumbles. They hold her up. No need to be rough. Everyone knows what is coming. From deep inside her body, from the cord in her spine and the wide bloodways under the ribs, from the emptiness of her womb and the rising of her chest, she shakes. A body in fear. They lead the fearful body over the turf and along the track. Her bare feet numbed most of the pain of rock and sharp brushes. Chanting rises. The drums sound slow, unsyncopated with the last panic of her heart. Others follow, wrapped against the cold, dark figures processing into the dusk. On arrival, they strip her. It is easy. They have put her into a loose tunic. Her body is white in the pale red light, solid against the wisps of fog and the tracery of reed. She tries to cover herself with her hands and is not allowed. One holds her while the other binds her. Her breathing is accelerating, its condensation settling on her face. All of them are accompanied by their exhalations, slowly dissolving into the air. They turn her to face the crowd. They display her to her neighbours and her family, to the people who held her hands as she learnt to walk, taught her to dip her bread in the pot and wipe her lips, to weave a basket and gut a fish. She has played with the children who now peep at her from behind their mothers, has murmured prayers for them as they were being born. She has been one of them, ordinary. Her brother and sisters watch her flinch as the men take the blade, lift the pale hair on the left side of her head and cut it away. They scrape the skin bare. She doesn't look like one of them now. She shakes. They tuck the hair into the rope around her wrists. She is whimpering, keening. The sound echoes across the marsh, sings through the bare branches of rowan and birch. There are no surprises. They place another rope around her neck, hold the knife up to the setting sun as it edges behind the rocks. What is necessary is on hand. The sharpened willow withies, the pile of stones, the small blades and the large, the stick for twisting the rope. Not yet. There is an art to holding her in the place she is entering now on the edge of the water earth, in the time and space between life and death, too late to return to the living, and not time, not yet, not for a while, to be quite dead. Thank you. There are lots of things that I want to talk to you about. They cut off her hair. Yes. Um, what can we do to make someone feel less human? Like how yes. can we humiliate people? What can we do to take away, I'm using air quotes, their femininity? It's like in... The Little Mermaid, the Hans Christian Andersen version, when the sisters bargain with the sea witch and give yes. away their hair. Yes. And also mermaids, right? That comes back to that precious things in the sea. Absolutely. The sea. Yes, after I'd written this in the National Museum of Denmark, I found some twists of hair that had been thrown into the bog. And also this little detail here where it says um, they tuck the hair into the rope around her wrists. Now that's one little detail, but also like it implies she 
is causing this to herself. Yes. So was this the first bit that you wrote? Did you write it? No, no. I wrote this at the end. I think in this one I started at the beginning, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I started at, at the next beginning. The next, the next beginning. beginning. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the last sentence of that one is, and well, it's quite a long sentence, but ends that saying that she, it's not yet time, not yet, not for a while to be quite dead. And then darkness was a long time yeah. coming. So life is seeping forward, but death is creeping backwards and they're yes. meeting in the middle somewhere in this yes. no man's land. You're such a good reader. Yeah. So the narrator is Sylvie, mm-hmm. um, which is short for Sylvia. She's been given what her father believes to be an ancient British name because he's keen to perpetuate oh, ancient British father. ways of life. <laughs> yes. Everyone's favourite. <laughs> <laughs> um, and her father is Bill, um, who does love her. I didn't want him just to be a monster. He has excellent wilderness survival skills and is very invested in a kind of masculinity that can cope in any landscape. You know, if he fell out of a plane, he'd be just fine. Thank you very much. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Um, He's not really at all fine um, as an angry bus driver in a small northern town of the sort that you and I, I think, both know. Um, he's furious and he's trying to live in a world that doesn't really value him or anything that he can do. Mm-hmm. And he takes that out on his wife and his daughter. He has been born in the wrong century. Yes. Yes. So he's living yes. vicariously through history. And he, uh, they're there at this, um, this burial site with a group of students who are from yes. down south. Yes. yes. He's, it's a kind of living history project, a reenactment mm-hmm. of Iron Age life. Um, there isn't actually anything real there I mean it's not an archaeological site it's not a dig it's just a place that they've chosen and while I was writing it I was thinking about those imaginary games that children play that I played as a child where you and your friends have characters that you inhabit and it it can roll for weeks and weeks Um, and how those games can get out of control as people get more and more absorbed in them I mean, this reenactment is a game, mm. really. And the professor whose project it is knows that it's a game, and he's actually quite relaxed about it when the students sneak off to buy ice cream because he knows that they can't experience Iron Age life. They can only play with the technologies a little bit. Um, but Bill takes it very seriously. I think Bill sees it as a chance not quite to go back to the Iron Age, but to live in the way that he imagined Iron Age men, in particular, did live. Um, a moment where he can be important and valuable in a way that he doesn't get to be in daily life. Mm. It's really interesting that you went back to childhood and um, talking about the things that that we create for ourselves because that was what I was thinking too. Me bossing people around in my class, making them pick I up plays. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and I was thinking about nostalgia in that sense because when you're young, you play at being grown up yes. and you imagine all the things that you can do. And then when you're grown up. You, you perhaps don't long for childhood, but you have this nostalgic feel to it, and we have we we start to long for the past. And I wonder when that starts to happen. I don't know yeah. when that starts to happen. No. Like not even our own past, but a collective past, an imaginary past. Yes, yeah. where things have to be cemented in something real that's already happened. Whereas when we're children, everything is based in whatever the hell we want because yeah. everything is new and exciting, and the rules can be changed. I'm not nostalgic for my childhood at all. Mm. I think for me that's about space to play. Mm. And I always, when I'm talking to students, I talk a lot about serious play because I think when you say play, you give people permission to mess up and for it not to matter. Yes. And that's really what you need to, to write or to make any kind of art, mm-hmm. not to have to take it 
so seriously not to get precious about your sentences yeah to be able to delete it and try again to have a go at something that probably won't work and then it doesn't work and that's okay yeah um there's a brilliant story by uh, julie oranger it's her first in her collection how to breathe underwater and it's about these two um, these children who are playing in a treehouse, believing that they can fly until one of them jumps out uh-huh. and um and we never know what happens, but they moved her crumpled body into... Like, it was this really beautiful story, like, yes. all very like, nice and airy, and then, and then this child is just crumpled, and they move her into the soil, and they just go inside, and the parents are talking, and they don't talk about it. And then one of the parents goes, OK, Pete, we have to go home now. And he's going, OK. So he just gets in the car, and it just ends with him in the back of the car, not saying anything. I was like, brilliant. oh, my God, it's horrible. Yes. Um, but yes, the, how things can be so make-believe until they're not. Yes. Yeah, and the yes. consequences of that. And I feel that that happens and is a very real reflection also of um, Brexit. Yes. We have to bring it up at some point. Yes. Um, and what that ideally looks like yes. and what that means and then the reality of that later. Yes. Um, so can we talk about that a bit and how yeah. that relates into yes, the book? Yes, absolutely. And that really came from that, that week by Hadrian's Wall thinking about how we tell the stories of prehistory mm-hmm. because you can think about the the Romans bring Britain into history mm-hmm. I mean if you go to, I've started doing this now in museums everywhere you can stand in the space between history and prehistory you can stand in that moment when writing begins and the written record comes into being and in Britain it's the arrival of the Romans before that it's prehistory mm-hmm. it's surprisingly sharp you know they're not there and then they are there and yeah. then they're writing about it so often the story of the Roman Empire has been told as a kind of proto-European community European Union you know whatever the word for it was at the stage where the story was being told mm-hmm. and problematically in relation particularly to colonial presences in North Africa um, there's been an idea that the European Union is some kind of reinvention of the Roman Empire you know a a centre of civilization, Mm -hmm. uh, a trade network um, a way of making the trains run on time and we can think about the Roman presence in Britain either as the arrival of an invading foreign force which kind of was, mm-hmm. in which case you get very nostalgic about the ancient Britons, which is both difficult and dangerous because we don't know very much about them. Mm-hmm. Or you can see it as the moment where Britain steps into civilization and steps into history and where whatever we mean by British culture, and goodness knows what we mean by British mm-hmm. culture, takes its point of origin. And I think that duality, the way it can be two completely incompatible stories at the same time, is interesting and obviously speaks to what's going on at the moment and particularly to Brexit. Mm. There's some very weird um, far-right, I was going to say far-right archaeology, but it's not archaeology at all, far-right willful misinterpretation of archaeology, Mm. um, all of which is a desperate desire to deny the fact that British history is one wave of immigrants after another, back as far as you can possibly go yeah you know, we all came from Africa at the beginning it, it makes no sense yeah. so that was that was how those narratives kind of came together mm. and the book set in the early 90s so I was thinking about my own teens and 
I was born in 1975, we were being educated for European future. It was a lot of pressure to learn lots of languages, which I did and enjoyed very much. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of the language classes were about Europe and how Europe was going to be the future. And this, you know, this was our world that was waiting for us to step into. Without learning about the British Empire. Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think for people of my generation, born around the time Britain entered Europe, Yeah. To have this rift suddenly in our 40s where the thing that we grew up with and that we thought was ours mm. is broken mm. is quite shocking. And I was, I guess this is my point of nostalgia and I was thinking about the early 90s and all those walls coming down. I mean, I was in Germany when the Berlin Wall came down. A sense that a damaged continent was healing and was opening and you could go anywhere and the kids from what was then Czechoslovakia and Hungary could come and do their Erasmus here in the UK and it was all, you know, it was our place and it was our time. Yeah. Um, and now it's not anymore. Let's talk about class a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I uh, loved the bit where um, Sylvie is watching the other students talking to each other and asking questions to the teacher and she's yes. thinking, oh, you can't just ask people questions like that, you have to be polite. Um, and then... At a different point, they're talking about CVs, and she's thinking, what an amazing thing a CV must be, and to imagine a a process where you could fly away, because she doesn't ever see herself as being able to do that. And it brought back so many memories for me. We didn't have these kind of conversations where you could disagree with each other, and it was intellectual, and that was okay. If we disagreed at home, people shouted, and they cried, and we went to our rooms, and we slammed our doors, and it wasn't until... I met my partner's family, um, who, who are from down south, but we would sit around and have these... And I, I stayed silent for years in those discussions because I just found them so tense. I was like, how can you talk about these things in a detached way and not in, like, an emotive way? I didn't get it. Yes. Yeah, and there's a lot of that. In yes. This. I was thinking about how the students don't see that gap. Sylvie can see it and they can't. Yeah. And, I mean, that's how privilege works. Yeah, I was going to say. Can't, yeah. You can't see your own privilege. Yeah. And it's not exactly the student's fault that they can't see their own privilege, but they're failing to see what's in front of their eyes. Mm. So the reader who can see that is also seeing the blindness of privilege and seeing its limitations. Mm. Um, and I did want to write about that, how you can feel as if you know a lot, you can, you can know a lot, but still fail to see what's in plain sight. Mm-hmm. under your nose and maybe that was partly me you know, thinking thinking about Brexit and my own complete shock at the way that vote went I mean my, my sense that I didn't live in the country I thought I lived in and everything I believed about my own country turned out to be wrong mm. um, and that so many people are feeling that on, on opposite sides yes yes, yes. yes. this lack of communication I was going to say because we don't talk to each other because there's such division at every level mm. that one half of the country cannot know what the other half of the country is thinking and not understand why they're thinking it. Um, and in that bit where um, Sylvie is listening to them talk about CVs and stuff, and there's a great line after that where she says, oh, there's some time over there. And she points. Yes. And I was like, Sarah's so clever. <laughs> so look, this is pointing at the time that they have, and she doesn't because yes. she lives in this time of space. And I'm like, oh, yes, I like this very much. Um, so what what things were you consciously... Obviously, you're thinking about so many things, yes. but what key themes and things were you very conscious of when pulling all of the narratives together? For it this? was scapegoating. That, that was the central thing okay. for me. That was really where I started. 
And that's what's happening so graphically in that opening section. Mm. She looks like them, but then she doesn't. Mm. It's it's a deliberate step-by-step process of making her different and therefore having permission to hurt her. Mm-hmm. And in some ways that's that's what's happening all the way through the book. How do we give ourselves permission to treat other people as less than human? How do we choose the people we're going to treat as less than human? What stories do we tell? What stories do we tell to legitimate our sense that some people are less human than others? And we all do it all the time. I mean, coming here, I walked past several homeless people and kind of nodded and smiled and edged away. Mm. I would hate to be treated like that. I know that. I know that they are fully as human as I am in every possible way. But it's the George Eliot thing. You can't bear too much reality. You know, whoops, wrong Eliot. It's the T.S. Eliot thing. <laughs> Humankind cannot bear very much reality. And George Eliot, we should die of the war that lies on the other side of silence. Mm-hmm. You can't carry everybody's pain all the time. You have to find some ways of deciding who you're not going to think about. Mm-hmm. And stories help us do that because they yes. create communities, they divide communities. Mm-hmm. I'm like this, so therefore you're like me. Yes. They're like that, they can stay over there. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that is interesting. I think that's why um, partly why I find the history of fairy tales so fascinating because yeah. just seeing it, what tales, because all tales are told all the time about all different kinds of people, you know, from all walks of life, but which ones does society decide, okay, that one we're going to keep yes. and that one we're going to keep? Why these ones? So this book is, it, it becomes more sinister throughout and it's building and it makes you feel so on edge and um, I, I gobbled it up all in one go. Can you talk about how you build tension? I think it's about where to, where to let the scary bits in. Mm. Um, because you can't do it too much too soon. Yeah. And you can't do it too little too... If you do it too little too late, then you just get this weird moment of... Where people think, change. Oh, I didn't think they were like that. Yes. Or why, where yeah. is this coming from? So that it has to be there, but I guess it becomes more obvious as you go along at the beginning it might just be there in the occasional simile mm-hmm. um, or somebody having a slight sense of something that they don't take any notice of and then the evidence has to build up. And do you find that you go back and you add in little eggs for yourself? Not with this not, one. Not so much, no? No. And did I this one come quite quickly as well? This one has a ridiculous backstory. This was after the residency in Hexham mm-hmm. and I had an idea for a book that I knew from the beginning was impossible, really. It had five time frames going from the Romans to now. Why would you do that to yourself? <laughs> I was playing, I was experimenting. You have to be allowed to play. Yeah, yes. and it had the mm-hmm. same characters appearing in each time frame, but they weren't time travelling, they were simply recurring. Like in a cloud atlas kind of way? Weirder than that. Oh, I think five different first person narrators, but also a kind of chorus. And I, of course, <laughs> I knew it couldn't work, but I wanted to see how far I could okay, get with yeah. it. Um, and I got, it was, well, some people recognise this, and they are people like me, and some people would find this completely puzzling. It was like that moment when you're driving your car and it starts making a funny noise, mm-hmm. and you just turn up the radio and keep going and hope that it will somehow resolve itself. Yeah. Uh, and for a little while, maybe it has, and then it gets louder, and it gets louder, but you think, maybe, you know, I can still make it home, it'll be all right, I don't mm. have to stop now, and the noise gradually gets louder. It was writing like that. Mm. I mean, I could always manage the next few pages, yeah. but I could also see that there was no way I was going to get to the end. Yeah. Um, and eventually, I admitted that the wheels had fallen off some time ago and stopped, <laughs> uh, which was fine. Um, and then I looked at these various bits um, and I sent just fragments to my agent and my editor and said, 
is any of this speaking to you? Is, mm. is there any point in trying to pursue any of this in a completely different way because the way I was doing it has fallen apart? And they both said, oh, the Sylvie bit. What can you do with the Sylvie bit? Mm. And I thought, oh, okay, interesting. And I said, well, it, it'll be short. And they mm. said, it's fine, it's fine. And I have this kind of Yorkshire thing that, you know, you mustn't give short measure. <laughs> People pay for novel, you should give them a novel, damn it. <laughs> And Anna and Max both said, no, 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 it's fine. It's, you know, people don't buy novels by weight. It's fine, yeah. really. Just finish it. Um, so I did. Thank you. We're going to go and eat our cookies now we and, and drink some more tea and go and buy Sarah's book because it is excellent and it is out right now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books with Jen. If you enjoyed it and you're not already subscribed, please do. There are many past episodes that you can check out and I have future ones forthcoming with Jessica Fox that I recorded at the Wigtown Book Festival and also with Ayabami Adebayo, who's the author of Stay With Me. Um, I have lots more forthcoming as well, but they're the next two that you can expect to hear. As I mentioned in the podcast, please do go out and check out Sarah's work. She's absolutely wonderful. Ghost Wall is amazing. The title zone is fantastic. So is Night Waking. I've just finished Bodies of Light. I'm currently reading Names for the Sea, which is a, her nonfiction book about her time spent in Iceland. So go read everything. It's wonderful. I hope you all have a great week. I'll speak to you very soon. Bye.